brand has got very little to do with marketing, almost nothing to do with social media, virtually nothing to do with content generation, and everything to do with the creation of meaning. You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me every Tuesday and Friday when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice on making in the UK. Let's crack on with the show. welcome to episode 74 of the Make It British podcast. Now, I might sound a little bit different today because I usually record the podcast at home in my house and I've got builders coming in today putting in underfloor heating. So they have had to take out all of the furniture and rip up all of the original carpet. And where I would normally record this is just, it's impossible. It sounds far too echoey. So I'm crammed into a cupboard with most of my furniture. It's the only room in the house that's got carpet. And I'm hoping this is going to sound okay, but I'm going to keep it short because I'm literally standing on one foot of space and the rest of it is likely to topple on me at any moment. So today's episode is the penultimate of recordings of the talks from Make It British Live 2019, but it's a good one and it's worth waiting for. It's by Simon Middleton, who you may have heard on this podcast before, and he is the founder of several British-made brands, including menswear brand Shackleton, and then more recently, Blackshaw Clothing, which is a locally produced, slow-made premium coastal clothing range for men. That's how he describes it. And I'll put a link to Blackshaw Clothing in the show notes for this podcast, which you can find at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash 074. Now, this talk, which he did at the event, and he's spoken at our event several times before, and he's always a really popular speaker. He always has a queue of people waiting to ask him questions after he's finished. This talk is rather intriguingly called The Truth About Branding, dot, dot, dot. It's not about logo and it's not about generating content. So if you own a British brand or are thinking of starting one, you're going to love this talk, which was recorded at Make It British Live in May 2019. Now over to Simon. The last time I was here... Well, it wasn't here. It was at the, the previous venue um, in Brick Lane. I did a, an interview with uh, Eric Musgrave, and he was interviewing me about a brand I'd begun called Blackshaw. And I don't know if any of you were there and heard that. Did any of you hear that? No? Okay. Well, I'll keep this recap very short. I founded a brand called Blackshaw, about which more in a little while. But I was in a bit of a daze at last year's Make It British event because we were looking for a major investor and we found one, or we thought we had. There's a lesson here for anyone who's thinking of starting a brand that requires investment. We thought we'd found one. The major investor, who I won't name, was based in Thailand and had a very strong reputation as an industrialist and a senior executive uh, in uh, manufacturing and as an investor in businesses, particularly in the West. And this investor was interested in investing a quarter of a million pounds in our business. And that was our target investment to launch Blackshaw in the way we wanted to invest it then. So we thought we'd nailed it. We thought it was the problem was solved. I remember going, I was in London one evening shortly before that with a friend of mine and telling him all about how easy it was to find this investor. Anyway, the person, the real Thai investor, who was a real person, we checked out, had all the bona fides, was the real McCoy. The person I'd been dealing with was not that man. The person I'd been dealing with on the phone, by email, by Skype, was pretending to be the real guy, okay? He said, 
that he would invest a quarter of a million pounds in us, with us, but in order to, for us to access that money, we had to pay about 25,000 pounds up front. Now you're all sitting there thinking, what a mug. Why am I listening to this mug? But if you heard the news recently about banks stepping up and saying they're gonna support people who've been ripped off, many, many, many tens of thousands of individuals and small business owners get ripped off every year in this, by this methodology or a similar one. Anyway, alarm bells rang. We didn't give this guy any money at all because we thought this, there's something that's not right about this. It feels wrong. He said he needed the money in order to go through certain licensing procedures to release money from Thailand to the UK. We investigated that. It turned out not to be the case. And we thought, aha, you're not fooling us, mate. So we withdrew and we were very disappointed, but we still had our money. Not, not his money, but we had what, you know, the money we had to start with. But we were a lot of money short of a party. So I put a call in. In fact, first of all, I went to Barclays Fraud Department online because we banked with Barclays. I went to their fraud department and I told them the story and they were very supportive. And I said, please, can somebody call me because I might need to talk about a sort of loan scenario to see us over the gap while we find other investments and so on. And then about three hours after putting that call in, I got a phone call from a very charming Irishman. Um, and uh, despite being half Irish myself, I still find the brogue a very charming uh, accent. And uh, that was part of it, I think. This guy knew everything about Barclays and fraud and helping businesses out of difficult problems. And he said, don't worry about it at all, sir. We realize how challenging this is for you. This happens to a lot of people. We realize it's put your business in a very difficult position, but we can lend you 50,000 pounds. And I said, no, no, I, you can't lend me 50,000 pounds because we haven't started producing yet. And we already know from talking to our business manager that until we start to create turnover, you won't lend us anything. We've, we're fine with that. And he said, no, these are special circumstances, sir. We will lend you. We went through all the details. Um, and he said, tomorrow morning, he said, it takes a few hours, but tomorrow morning, go online to your bank and you'll find that there's 50,000 pounds there in your bank account and the terms and things will follow, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's what I did. And guess what was in my bank account when I went online the next day? Nothing at all. There was not only no 50,000 pounds, there was nothing, zero, zilch. Nor was there any money in my personal bank account, nor in my consultancy bank account, nor in my shared account with my fiance, who I'm happy to say is still my fiance. Uh, we got cleaned out. Now to Barclays credit, um, excuse the pun, the real Barclays then sorted it out and they I said, I feel an idiot. Various people in the local media said, this guy's an idiot, etc. I got a lot of flack for it. It was very reputation damaging. But Barclays, the genuine Barclays fraud team said, you've been the victim of international organized crime and uh, you're no more an idiot than someone who's been burgled or mugged or anything else. And uh, that made me feel a little bit better. And then Barclays gave us all our money back, which made me feel an awful lot better. So enough of that story, except that it sets the scene for what happens next with Blackshaw, but you're gonna to have to wait until, uh, for a few minutes until I get to the rest of that. So the other part of my life is that I talk and write about branding, which is how I got into manufacturing in the first place. My very first Make It British, which was six, seven years ago, I can't remember, six years ago. Five, is that? 2014, the very first Make It British, and I spoke at that, and at that talk, I was clutching a banjo. And I had start, I was one of the very few non-fashion uh, brands speaking. I'd started a banjo factory for reasons which, if I get to know any of you better, I'll tell you one day, there isn't time now. Um, it was a brand journey, but it was British manufacturing. I started a little banjo factory, and we sold quite a lot of these things. And uh, our banjo was called the Shackleton after the Explorer, and people started to say to us, what else have you got that represents this amazing Explorer from the Edwardian era, Ernest Shackleton? And I found a photograph of Ernest Shackleton wearing a, a very interesting basket weave pattern, uh, like a Guernsey or Gansey sweater, um, that I think his wife had knitted for him. And he was photographed wearing it in the Antarctic in the early 1910s, 
And uh, so I took that to a number of factories and I found a factory in Leicester and we started making shackles and sweaters. Shackles and sweaters sold like hot cakes. Um, we hived off the musical instrument uh, company, which became Shackleton Instruments, separate company entirely. And Shackleton Clothing began as a brand. And um, what I wanted to really talk to you about today is a number of truths about branding. And one of those truths is that really there's a limit to what you can plan. So much of it happens by accident. And if there is a discipline and an art to it at all, it is spotting the happy accident and chasing it down like a ferret after a rat. It's the, when I started Shackleton Banjos, I had no concept that I was going to enter the world of fashion. And yet that's only five or six years ago. Within a couple of years, I was a knitwear manufacturer. That grew into a whole range of clothing. I'm no longer involved in Shackleton. I left there about three years ago. I retired from there and I've sold my shares. To the best of my knowledge, that brand continues to grow in strength. And I think you can buy Shackleton clothing in places like Harvey Nichols, which is a remarkable journey over a five-year period for something that started as a banjo factory. So what is it about Shackleton that's, that's the most interesting thing for me? Well, it's partly the luck, but the most interesting thing is that it was story-driven. People bought those sweaters because they were replicas of a sweater that Ernest Shackleton, the explorer, had worn. That's what they were buying. They weren't actually buying a jumper at all. It's a very nice jumper. And they've refined them now, and they're even nicer now, the new owners of the company. But that's not actually what people are buying at all. They're buying the story. And my belief about branding and in fact, I think it's more than my belief, I think it's an incontrovertible truth about branding, is that brand has got very little to do with marketing, almost nothing to do with social media, virtually nothing to do with content generation, and everything to do with the creation of meaning. So if I was to stop now and you wanted to walk away, if you're bored, just remember, brand is about meaning. Um, oh, there's me. Um, my mum would have been very proud to see that picture that big. <laughs> but she'd have said, shouldn't you have worn a tie? Um, fair comment, really. So, brand is about meaning and the reason brand is so important. So today, if you came here thinking I was gonna to talk to you about marketing, then I'm not. I'm gonna to talk to you about an existential human need. Human beings need and love stories. And they need and love stories because it is stories that create stability, structure, direction, solace in an otherwise desperately frightening and confusing world. Going right back to early mankind, we needed stories. Most people who study the subject, I'm not one of them, but most people who study the subject of the development of language say that language came about in order for people to gossip to each other because they needed to gossip in order to sort out social strata, social behaviours and also, of course, to warn each other about the dangers of the saber-toothed tiger or the crocodile in the bushes. So we developed language in order to tell stories. Before we had language, we still told stories, but we told them probably in a different way, with symbols, with signs, with a certain amount of acting out of things, with mimicry. Um, and one of the most fundamental things we do with our language is to tell each other stories. We tell each other stories about our relationships, like, I'm getting married next Saturday. No, I really am getting married next Saturday. So I w that's, for me, that's the biggest story in my life right now. The second biggest one is that, um, I'm relaunching the brand that wouldn't die, Blackshaw, about more of which later. But you've all got stories. You've all got stories about yourselves, your, your, your friends, your family, your businesses. And that's really how we build brands, because brand is meaning. It's how we create meaning. Sometimes when I speak at business-to-business -business events, people say, well, that might be like that in the world of the consumer, mate, they say. But it's not how it happens in the world of business-to-business. -business. Here we need data and facts. It's not true. Business to business is done through storytelling and relationships. And anyone who's ever tried to sell anything to anybody else, whether it's selling to a consumer or indeed selling to 
a fellow business person will know that that's true. You buy from people. The product you buy, obviously important, the price you pay for it, it's technical specification, but they're all secondary. Brand is about meaning. And because it's about meaning, and because it's fundamental to our core selves, it works in two directions, which sort of go around and loop in the middle. Hence, brand in the middle, commerce on one side, which I guess is what we're here for. We're here to do commerce of one sort or another. But it also speaks to culture. And if, there is, if there's an industry other than that's more rooted in culture than fashion and clothing, I don't know what it is, apart from perhaps TV and cinema and the creation of those sorts of fictions. But fashion is deeply rooted in culture. Of course it is. So, and brand sits at the middle. Why do some brands become incredibly desirable when other brands who make a similar product, arguably at a lower price in some cases, struggle? Why does that happen? Why is... Why are certain brands on the high street, retail brands that is, falling on their faces and others continue to thrive? Well, it's because of meaning. It means, they mean something to certain people. So I'm gonna prove this to you now uh, with, by showing you these images. Now these seven people, does anybody know, recognize them? Do you recognize any or all of those people? Can I have a show of hands if you recognize any of them? Okay, so we're talking culture. Okay, if it's more than 75% of people in the room, I'm assuming we're talk we have a, you know, there's certain aspects of our, we may have a lots and lots of different cultural references, but there's about 75% of people here recognize some or all of these people. I'll tell you who they are. Okay, that's uh, DCI John Luther. Uh, that's the Welsh one whose name escapes me for the moment from a program called Hinterland. Uh, that's Jimmy Perez, DCI Jimmy Perez from Shetland. That's uh, Detective Kurt Wallander from Sweden. Um, that's the second Barnaby, uh, not the original Barnaby, the, the jumping the shark Barnaby. I don't know if you have, any of you ever watched Midsummer Murders, but when the original Barnaby wanted to retire, they made up a cousin who with similar skill set and background who took over his job. Extraordinary. But anyway, um, uh, I can't remember the name of this one. I've got them on the next slide, I think. He was in a recent series, um, uh, called The Victim. He was a police detective. This is John Hanna, the actor. And probably the most topical and current and obviously recognisable at the moment is uh, uh, DS, yet to be promoted, Steve Arnott from AC12 in Line of Duty. Now, does anybody know what these people have in common? Please let me know. I can't hear any voices. Is there a microphone that we can... Sorry? They are all police officers, that's true. Sorry? They are all men, that's true. Okay, yeah, they're wearing similar clothes. Anything else? They are main characters in TV detective programs. Sorry? They all have a story. They have some personal characteristics. I don't think there's a happily married man amongst them with the exception of Barnaby, perhaps. I don't watch Midsummer Murders, it's too soft. Um, but uh, all of these people have got troubled backgrounds in one way or another. They're all a bit moody, a bit edgy. Some of them are downright difficult. John Luther is known to throw chairs through windows, to dangle suspects over tall buildings, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they're all quite different. They behave in quite different ways. But they have one other thing in common that nobody's mentioned. Okay, I'll show you. I think I'll show you. Okay, seven different British TV detectives. Now bear in mind, all of these characters were created by different authors. May, the TV versions were made by different production companies. They have completely different stories set in different places. Some of them are urban, some of them are very, very rural, fringes of the you know, well, far west of Wales or uh, Shetland, etc., or the southernmost tip of, of Sweden but they've all got something in common. And it's a brand thing. They all drive the same kind of car. Now, some of you might be thinking, huh, well, that's not very interesting, but it is interesting when you really think about it. Seven different detectives on seven different shows from seven different creators 
and they all drive Volvos. Why? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because brand equals meaning. Because those, this is working in reverse, this is working into culture, or culture working back. The creators of those programs have a limited amount of time to give you certain signals about somebody's character. And what do we want from a detective who's out there doing stuff? And there's all kinds of, you know, there's usually serial killers or there's human traffickers or there's something rather unpleasant and gruesome going on in which somebody sometimes has to be rescued. What do we want from those people? Well, we want them to behave aggressively to the baddie, but we want to feel safe with them. And what's an easy way of signaling trust and safety without having to have some long expository conversation about trust and safety? Especially when this guy is behaving incredibly badly in lots of ways, but we still need to know that he's the good guy. And we need to know it quick. They put him in a Volvo and we know immediately. Now, just to go back, during all the shenan- I don't know how many of you watched Line of Duty. Probably quite a few. It was amazing uh, figures they had. But, and people were trying to get, who is H, you know, who, the baddie? Uh, who, who can we trust? Everyone was telling lies, half lies, half truths, deceiving each other. I knew, rather smugly and somewhat disappointingly, right from the beginning, that DS Arnott was as straight as an arrow. And how did I know that? Because in the, a very early scene of the first episode of the latest series, when we knew all hell was going to break loose in terms of trust and lies, Steve Arnott arrives at a crime scene in a Volvo. I thought, ah, we know who to follow. Now, next series of Line of Duty comes along. You watch out for that. If Steve Arnott's not in a Volvo, you can no longer trust him. Now, I'm not an apologist for Volvo or any other car company. I'm not on their payroll. But it's an extraordinary thing when you think about it that in 1905, I think it was, Volvo set out in Sweden to create a safer car than anyone had made before. Now, you might think in 1905, cars didn't need to be terribly safe because there weren't many of them and they didn't go very fast. But actually, there were an alarmingly large, proportionately speaking, number of road accidents because there weren't many cars there, so people didn't recognize them, know what to do with them when they came along. And because although they didn't travel very fast, they didn't brake very fast either. So horses would get tangled up in cars, pedestrians would get knocked over by cars, all kinds of stuff would happen with early cars. And Volvo created better brakes and, to the best of my knowledge, actually a more powerful engine, which enabled them to slightly get out of trouble and better signaling and all of that stuff. And they said right from the beginning, we want to make a safer car. And they went on to do that. They created the inertia reel seatbelt. They created crumple zones. They created big bumpers. You remember the kind of Volvo that uh, uh, Luther drives has got these great big sort of bumpers around that you remember from the 1980s. He drives a beaten up old one. Everything they have done has been about a core of safety. Now, here's the strange brand thing. That even now when you have international safety standards for cars, a star rating, and Renault consistently, but only marginally, outperforms Volvo in, in its... They, Volvo invented the crash test dummy. and the pro, I've been to the factory where they do it, where they send a, a car rocketing down a track and smash it into a wall to see what happens to the, the painted dummy inside. Okay? All about safety. But Renault, actually, in tests, are marginally safer than Volvo. But does that mean that Renault now owns safety? No, it doesn't. Volvo will go on meaning safety for as long as it follows that meaning and stays true to itself. And that's why cultural people like writers and TV producers pick that up and use it as a signal. Now, this might be a slightly convoluted thing that I'm telling you, but I'm telling it to you because if you have a brand, whether you are a factory making for other people or whether you are a fashion brand, or you're a designer, or you're some other part of the process to do with fashion, you're a consultant, or you're a printer, or whatever you are. In the end, the most important thing that you have is your brand. And I don't mean your logo, and I don't mean your content generation, and I don't mean your advertising. I mean the meaning that you create in other people's heads and hearts. Meaning, it's all about meaning. 
the gentleman in the, in the back there, if you, could you, would you be kind enough to reach into my bag and pull out, there's a waistcoat in there, my lucky waistcoat. Um, so, brand is about meaning. Thank you. <laughs> Normally I wear this lucky waistcoat. Um, you can probably see from here, those of you that are familiar with these things, it's a Harris Tweed lucky waistcoat with a map of the Outer Hebrides on the back, rather niftily. Um, and it's made uh, in Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis. Now, this is a brand if ever there was one, because this is a brand that's all about meaning. In the, in the Isle of Lewis and Harris, which is really just one island with a sort of little, a narrow bit in the middle, um, and a couple of surrounding islands, are the only places in the world where Harris Tweed is made. And if you buy a product that has this badge on it, assuming it's not a knockoff, then you will know that this cloth was woven by one of about, somewhere between 150 and 200 individual weavers who are self-employed weavers working in their own sheds. Um, sometimes with uh, sheep they've raised themselves, although uh, not so much, but they work on hand-driven looms. It's all, everything, every, every part of this yarn is driven by hand. They're not allowed to use mechanical uh, power or uh, uh, electric power or anything. And then it will have been woven in one of about three or four mills. And it will have been stamped somewhere. Every few yards of the fabric gets stamped. Um, and uh, an ironed-on sort of thing to prove this comes from from Harris, that it's officially Harris Tweed, and it's governed by something called the Harris Tweed Authority. Now, there are lots of tweeds in the world, and some of them are marvelous in their different ways, and this one has its uh, qualities, some of which it's a little bit itchy and scratchy, it's a little bit warm. But you will never find that story, that meaning, with any other fabric. You can trace back your individual Harris Tweed garment to the individual weaver who wove the yarn in the first place. It's an extraordinary thing. They know how, because it's a meaning, it's about culture, it's about community, it's about an industry, it's about a place, a real place. It can't be reproduced and still be authentic. Meaning is fundamentally all you've got. There's some famous brands here and these famous brands have not only weathered the storms of economic change and cultural change, but they've grown. They sometimes take a knockback, um, but they continue to be robust and to grow and develop. And I don't need to tell you who they are, but one of the things, if you think about it, bearing in mind what I've said about Volvo meaning safety and trust, and about Harris Tweed meaning handmade on some little islands off the northwest coast of Britain. These mean something too. Apple means technology made accessible and sort of beautiful. And Apple devotees, if you like, like me, are spared the agony every time we decide to get a new computer. I never have to pick up a computer magazine. I never have to go into PC world and listen to some bloke banging on about different clock speeds or RAM or whatever, I just buy the next Apple. And it's not because I'm an idiot, it's because I understand the meaning. Why would I go anywhere else? I, I, I believe in that and every time I've bought an Apple product, whether it's a phone or a computer, it gives me the satisfaction that I knew it would. And the people outside the Apple circle who say, oh, Apple's just for trendy idiots or people think they're trendy idiots, they are just wrong. That's it. Yeah, they're, just, they're just blinking well wrong, okay? Coca-Cola, now I don't drink fizzy drinks really, uh, but Coca-Cola is, well we know what it means, I don't even have to explain it. It means a certain kind of indulgent, celebratory, summery, and then sometimes Christmas Eve, weirdly, kind of... Uh, in a sort of sugary indulgence. I, 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 but it means that so consistently, and it has meant that way for more than half a century, that we don't need it explaining to us. It's sort of in, in our 
almost in our DNA, and the same for McDonald's, and the same arguably for Nike. They, what they have in common is that they each have a very, very tiny set of words and phrases that are associated with them. Another favorite example of mine is John Lewis. John Lewis means, and I've done this with hundreds and hundreds of people in dozens and dozens of workshops and presentations, John Lewis means quality, service, and value. It's meant that for 50 years. Quality, because you know that they don't sell tat as a rule, and most of what they sell is the best of its kind. Service, because their people are well-trained. And quality also refers to the fact that their actual shopping experience is generally speaking very pleasant, nicely lit, nicely designed, nicely laid out. My mother, um, who's no longer with me, I'm afraid, but um, she used to, on a Sunday, she used to go to church, first of all. I used to have to wheel her to church in her wheelchair. And then she'd have coffee with the church ladies and then she'd go to what she called her second church, which was John Lewis. So I'd wheel her down into the town of Norwich and she would spend a happy couple of hours just sort of being pushed around, saying, take me over there, take me over there, and flashing the green John Lewis card now and again to buy things. John Lewis was like her spiritual, second spiritual home. And the other thing about John Lewis quality service, also value. Now, John Lewis isn't cheap, but we're reassured that they're never going to be more expensive than anybody else because they tell us so. And if you go in and say, I bought this cheaper somewhere else, or I can find it cheaper somewhere else, they will match the price. But that's not the real thing. The real thing is the quality servicing. But that's all they mean. They never talk about anything else apart from quality, service, and value. Quality, service, and value. It's, it's, the, it's the consistency. So if you have a brand, find one, two, absolute maximum three things and mean those. And don't worry about meaning anything else. Um, a plug here for uh, probably my favorite brand that I've only, to my shame, recently discovered. Hyatt Jeans uh, in Cardigan in West Wales. Um, is anyone from Hyatt here today? Probably not. Okay. Um, Hyatt Jeans created by David Hyatt, different spelling, and his wife, who, who were the people behind Howie's, which was a, an outdoor brand, which was very successful, which they sold. Then a few years ago, they moved to a farmhouse just outside Cardigan, out of London, and uh, they heard this story about um, the fact that a very, very large jeans factory had been in Cardigan um, and had closed down some years before. And 400 people were made redundant. And David Hyatt, being both a sort of brand visionary and a general smart guy and knowing an awful lot about the world of, of fashion as well, decided to reopen that factory. It happened in a couple of stages, but they're now back in the original factory that employed 400 people, although it doesn't employ that many yet. Now, his meaning that he gave to himself and his staff and the company was really, really simple. There are two aspects to it, actually. The first one is, why are we doing this? We're going to give 400 people their jobs back. You can't get much more focused than that, can you? It's big, it's bold, it's audacious and utterly focused. And the important thing, and you'll hear me come on to this in a minute, is that it goes way beyond, are we going to make some money? Are we going to be a successful brand? This is about a brand being part of a community, part of our culture, part of our planet. And the second thing that he says, and you'll see this if you visit their website, or you subscribe to their excellent newsletters and so on, is that he has a mantra, and the mantra is do one thing well. Now, I different people would have different interpretations and I, that's not my personal philosophy. I do several things quite badly. But he says, do one thing well. In other words, they're only going to make jeans. He says, we're never going to make bobble hats. If you catch us making bobble hats, you know, write to me or phone me up and say, you said you were only going to make jeans. They don't do accessory stuff. They leave that to people who specialize. They make jeans. And they make them so well and so effectively that the reason that this is a page off their website I saw an ad, I went onto their website, and it said, we found some extraordinary double indigo denim. Now, those of you who, know about, those of you who don't know about anything to do with denim, double indigo means that both the warp and the weft are dyed. Most jeans, it's only one or the other that's dyed, so they, they sort of fade, you, you see white as they fade. But with double indigo, it sort of fades equally. So they start off this really rich dark blue, and then they sort of gradually fade all over one. Now, not everybody likes it. Some people think it's a bit radical. But anyway, I think they're beautiful. 
He said, we've found enough denim from our denim hunter who travels the world in Japan to make 150 pairs. And that's all we're going to make in this particular denim. Um, and they were 255 pounds, I think, which is about 100 pounds more than their normal jeans, which are also, they're about 155 pounds. So they're, pr they're premium price. And I thought, oh no, oh, I'd love, to oh, numbered edition signed by the maker. Oh God, can I, oh, no, no, I can't afford it. I really can't afford to spend 255 quid. I'll tell you what, I'll think about it. I'll have some lunch. I was working at home that day. I'll go back after lunch and I'll see, I'll, I'll, I'll buy some. If I feel good about it, I'll treat myself. Went back after lunch, sold out. They sold 150 pairs of jeans at 255 pounds a pop, sight unseen in about four hours, and you'll have to wait at least six months to get them. How do they do that? Paying twice as much as you would for any other jeans, waiting six months to get them, and you can't even try them on until they arrive. How do they do that? They do that because they've created meaning. Because their mission is not just to make lots of money, but to give 400 people their jobs back. I wanted to be part of that. I wanted to own a pair of those jeans that was part of that story. That's real branding. They are, to my mind, the experts in our current fashion sector, certainly in men's casual wear. So, brand is a complicated thing, really. It's all of these things. It's everything that people think, feel, hear, say, imagine, fear, hope about a product or a service or an organization. And that things fluctuate. Sometimes we fear and loathe more than we love and hope. But you try, you, it's a complexity of all those things. You can't take one away. You can't say, oh no, my brand isn't about fear. Well, sometimes it is. It might be the fear that the product isn't good enough or fear that you're gonna get ripped off or fear that you're not gonna get good service. And here's a good one. Um, this is about six weeks old, I think, maybe eight weeks old, this press cutting. Um, but I found it the morning that I was doing a, a talk up in Gateshead recently. Uh, this is um, uh, Michael O'Leary from Ryanair. But um, to save you <laughs> reading it, um, Ryanair is basically a massive polluter. And this came out at the same time as the first uh, school climate strikes were happening in the UK, having come over from Scandinavia, etc. Okay, this is, this is a great bit. Andrew Murphy, the aviation manager at the European Federation for Transport and the Environment said, when it comes to climate, Ryanair is the new coal. Now, that really is not a meaning that Ryanair wants on their, painted on their wings or their tails, is it? Ryanair is the new coal. Ryanair reported it made 9.9 .9 metatons of CO2 emissions in 2018. A 6.9% increase. Everybody else on the planet is trying to drive down emissions. Ryanair are doing it more and more. Now, it's not really for me to criticise an aviation company or any other company. My point is, we've never liked Ryanair. Nobody's ever thought Ryanair was a lovely thing. No one ever says, oh, I love Ryanair, do they? You never say, I love Ryanair, it gets me within a short, well, within a half day's coach ride of the place I actually want to go. We don't celebrate it that way. But now, not only that, they're, they're the new coal. I mean, it's just awful, really. That's a brand that's, it's a commodity pretending to be a brand. Do not be those people. So here's a little thing that you might want to take a picture of or scribble down or something because it's really, really useful. It's a simple axis thing. I stole it from somebody else who I've long since forgotten. The horizontal axis goes from negative to positive. Obviously, negative is bad, positive is good. The vertical axis goes from weak to strong, weak meaning not many people know about you, or it. Strong meaning it's very well known. Now, obviously the best place to be, uh, laser doesn't work, the best place to be is the top right-hand corner. That is a great place to be as a brand. You want to be known by lots of people to think really positive things about you, but it's also a very challenging place to be. You've got to fight to be there. It's like walking a tightrope all the time. Hyatt jeans in their particular niche market are right up there now. Now their challenge is to gather more people into that top right-hand corner with them without losing that meaning. More customers, more business, more jeans, 
but without losing that story. That's their most difficult stage. They've done the first stage. Down in the bottom left-hand corner, negative and weak. That means you're not really a very good brand, but it's not too bad because not many people have heard of you either. So that's a good place. You can recover from that. So if you think your business is intrinsically flawed and you haven't really gone massively public yet, don't put your money into marketing. Put your money into sorting out your business. Get good before you get famous. Get good before you get famous. That's I think it's just really good advice. You can have that one. The top left is a really bad place to be. Really, really famous as a brand, but largely negative. If you think about Philip Green's Arcadia empire, that's kind of in that place right now. Everybody's heard of all of those high street shops, but all we think of them is sort of, they have the taint of failure about them somehow. That's not the fault of any of the people who work in them, but it's partly the fault of the economy and changing tastes, and it's also partly the fault of management. But that's a bad place to be. But most of us, including me, with my new brand, are down here in the bottom right, which is kind of largely positive, but weak because nobody's really heard about us. That's a good place to be. Start there. Do all your homework there. Get good before you get famous. Um, and then tell great stories. But make sure that those stories have certain characteristics, and we'll come on to those in a moment. You do have to do marketing. I'm not saying that marketing is irrelevant. Of course it isn't. Spend money on marketing. Spend 10% at least of your turnover on marketing. Probably more. But make sure that you're spending it on telling great stories. And the four circles here are the four key things you need to do with your brand. It needs to be authentic. In other words, you cannot tell lies. You can romance. You can tell stories. You can, you can polish and burnish a story, but don't tell lies. You have to be true to yourself and true to your customers. But you can be true, authentic, and screamingly dull. Don't be dull. Be compelling. Make an emotional a compelling emotional impact on people. Make them feel something. That's what Volvo make you feel. You feel safe in a Volvo. I even like the smell of Volvos. I don't own a Volvo, but I aspire to own. So an interesting thing about Volvo, and this is more their, their safety and trust thing, right? They are right on the button in terms of the zeitgeist. They are about to replace all the leather in their luxury models with a vegan, ecologically sound substitute. So their leather seats might look and feel like leather from about 2022, I think, but they'll actually not only be artificial, but they will be vegan. Um, they were the first company to announce that they're going to put speed limiters on all of their cars. Um, and I think, the, I don't know what the speed limit is, but the speed limit it for safety reasons. So no matter how hard you put your foot down in a Volvo, at least from about 2021, I think the speed limit is going to be about 95 miles an hour or something like that. They're done with 140 mile an hour jobs. And they, are the, they were the first company to announce, although they were swiftly followed by others, that I think again from 2021, they will not be producing internal combustion engine or diesel engine cars that are solely powered. They'll only produce hybrids, hybrids and increasingly pure electric. They were the first company to go to make that commitment. So that's a, it continues the safety and trust story. So telecom, all of those stories are deeply compelling to people who are thinking about buying a car. Be distinctive, be utterly different, do not copy. You can make a business out of copying other people, but you can't make a brand. You can sell a lot of stuff, you might even get rich, but you won't have made a brand. And when you're an old person telling your grandchildren what you did, you might say, yeah, I made a fast buck. In fact, I made lots of fast bucks and I pass it on to you. Did you make a brand, grandma? No, I just made a lot of money. Did you set out to make a brand? Yeah, but I thought it'd be easier to make lots of money. So you can make money, by being like other people, but you can't make a brand. And be excellent or aim, strive to excellence all of the time. Now there's a new one. In my book, Build a Brand in 30 Days, which I wrote 10 years ago, these were the four pillars. Authentic, compelling, distinctive, excellent. And they remain absolutely true. I'd observed them in dozens of other companies and I know that they, they are true. But there's a new one now and that's be contributive. From now on, it's not enough to say, 
This is a great business, it makes great products, it creates great service. From now on, all businesses, if they're to survive in the future, not only for millennials, but for the generations that follow, the grandchildren of millennials will say, I only want to buy from a company that contributes. Not a company that just recycles, a company that actually contributes something positive to the world. Do that, that's the fifth pillar. Be authentic, be compelling, be distinctive, be excellent, and contribute something. Hyatt Jeans, give 400 people their jobs back, that's a contribution. So, very, very briefly, I've got to stop now, and it's not meant to be a plug for anything that I'm doing, but I'm going to tell you the story because it's, it's kind of pertinent to it. I got bored being retired, and so I started a new brand called Blackshaw, which is coastal-inspired clothing for men's casual wear. This is a sample of one of the jackets. It's, it's not revolutionary, but it's, it's got some character about it. Now, it was a good idea. You remember I spoke at the beginning, about a year ago, I got badly ripped off and we, we retired, we were on the ropes really. We went back, we took just time out. I did other things, consultancy. My original investor and business partner just said, let's just give it six months. We're just kind of, we're knackered now. We've been through the mill, it didn't take off. And my fiance calls it the brand that wouldn't die because I then had a conversation with an old friend of mine and he said, I really like this, I'm interested, but I need a better story. He's here in the audience, I won't point him out. But he kept saying, he kept pushing me, saying, this story's not quite good enough, you know. It's interesting, clothing, but where's the story? What's, what's its, he didn't use the word, but I've interpreted it since, as what he was saying is, what's its contribution? What's it actually doing? Okay, it's not enough that it's made in Britain. It used to be enough to say we're made in Britain. That was exciting. But Kate's just, and all of you have just done a, such a phenomenal job on making it in Britain, that that's no longer distinctive in, it, in its own way. So Blackshaw was good, but it wasn't good enough. And about two months ago, six weeks, it's, it's a very short time ago, the whole thing came to life again. And it came about because I live in a, uh, the edge of a, a little uh, seaside town called Southwold in Suffolk, which is a lovely, lovely place. Um, and uh, I'm very lucky to be able to live on the fringes of it. Um, just up the road from there, 10 miles up the road, is an old fishing port and holiday resort called Lowestoft, one of the most deprived places in Britain. Um, and we decided to do something really radical with the brand. We'd failed to raise the quarter of a million pounds to go to, to, to uh, buy 200 of this and 200 of that and 400 of this from other factories. That was our original plan, from great factories, some of whom are here today. We wanted to buy, get them to make for us, and we simply couldn't get the money together. But when I was talking about luck, what it gave us, and that rip-off thing, gave us the opportunity to rethink and refeel what we were doing. And we decided instead to do something utterly different. We turned the whole thing on its head, and we've decided to open our own factory in Lowestoft, in a part of the old town which was formerly known as the, be the Beach Fishing Village. It was where the fishing community was based until the 1950s, when it all got washed away in the floods. Um, and there are a few buildings left from that era which were fishing net factories. And this is one of them, and these are young women braiding fishing nets uh, in 1951. Okay, and they braid these fishing nets and then sew them all together and they'd go out trawlers. And then after, uh, we think, we, we're not absolutely certain that that's the building that we have moved into. If it's not that building, then it's the one two doors along. There's about six of them in a row, used for various things now. Mostly kind of car mechanics and stuff like that. And now a clothing factory. And then after that, it was a, a fish uh, net factory, it became a baiting factory where they'd hook uh, lines up with, with bait and take those down to the harbour and put them on the fishing boats to take them out to sail. It was, it's so embedded in the community. It's dirty, it's scruffy, it needs so much work doing on it. And we move into it two days after I get married um, to, uh, to start Blackshaw as Britain's most easterly atelier, we'd like to say when we're feeling posh. Um, we're about 50 yards from the most easterly point in Britain. The North Sea practically splashing on the doorstep. We can see it and hear it. It's the extraordinary thing about it. We were looking for somewhere with a bit of grit, really. That's why we love the story. This fishing village was known by the people who lived in it as the grit. And we only discovered that by complete chance. And we thought, 
we fell in love with the building, we fell in love with the idea of creating new jobs in this very deprived area, and we're going to start with two or three machinists, we're going, and then when we've got one that's, if we can find one that's really good, we're going to start to train with apprenticeships and train up other people because those skills are gone uh, from Lowestoft, and we're going to do the whole thing, sort of vertical, you know, brand, manufacturing, design, everything, we may even make for other people, depends how, how it goes, really. But when we decided on that story, suddenly, it was no longer about just dreaming up a brand. Suddenly it was a mission. And whilst I can't say like David Hyatt, I want to give 400 people their jobs back, what I can say is I want to be part of the regeneration of this town. And I want to bring a skill, skilled work to this town. And I want to do it in a place where there's been skilled making of things for centuries. And suddenly, we committed to the place, we committed to the community, and the community is committed to us. I'm, I've, I get emails and phone calls constantly from people in the lo local area saying, how do we get to be part of it? We're, we're going to use the ground floor to rent out spaces to other makers, you know, leather makers, artists, other craftspeople. So we're going to build a community with our little factory above it. Um, anyway, to finish off with... And this is ultimately the point. It's about meaning. And it therefore is not about what you say. Marketing is about what you say. Brand is about what you do. Who you are and what you contribute. And that's, as Forrest Gump would say, all I have to say about this. So, thank you very much. I hope it's been of passing interest. for listening to the make it british podcast i make an episode every tuesday and friday plus there's also bonus episodes occasionally so don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you get notified every time a new episode goes live and if you enjoyed the show i would really love it if you left me a, just a little review on itunes the more reviews this podcast receives the more people will discover it and the more we can spread the word about making in the uk Thanks once again for listening to the Make It British podcast. Bye bye.